Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. Hoy me acompaña Irma Herrera. Irma is a performer who grew up in Alice, Texas. She identifies as Chicana, Latina, madre, lawyer, playwright, writer, stand-up comic, feminist, world traveler, and avid hiker. Bienvenida a este episodio, Irma. Muchísimas gracias por invitarme. Uh, you don't live in Texas anymore. No, I do not. I have lived away from Texas since, oh my goodness, um, the early 70s. Right, right. But um, your performance it explores those experiences, right, of growing up here in, in, um, in South Texas. And it is titled, uh, Why Would I Mispronounce My Own Name? Uh, which is, I, I was very excited to hear you perform it yesterday. And uh, we'll dig deeper into, into that uh, content. Uh, so tell me a little bit about growing up in, in Alice, Texas. Okay, well, Alice is south of San Antonio, mm -hmm. and it's a pueblito of 18,000 people. Uh, it is overwhelmingly Mexican-American. I would say today it's probably 90% Mexican-American. When I was growing up, it was maybe 70%. And it's a poor rural community, uh, farming, ranching, oil, of course, we're not the ones with the oil, uh, but they right. have some oil wells and drilling companies. So a lot of the raza who work in the fields um, and driving trucks and repairing equipment. But it's a very working class uh, community. Mm -hmm. And even though I left a very long time ago, I still have family there and my friends from Alice who didn't leave. Not everybody you know, went away. Right. And I have very close ties and great fondness for the community. I couldn't live there myself anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And in part, I like big cities. But um, it was a great place to grow up. And I have a lot of experiences, as you say, that I share in my play about growing up in a very racist society. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it isn't until you move away and see a different way of living mm -hmm. and other other ways that people structure their lives that you're really struck by what you faced as a child. You know what? Yes, and one of you um, did a couple mentioned a couple of things that really resonated um, in terms of. Um, I mean, the title you do talk about the the name, and I love it. I love the you know the idea of like really. Um, not only us um, owning our names, right? The way that we wanna when our names pronounced, our names are, are part of who you, who we are. Uh, but also for those that might hear a different type of name, to take the time to really, um, you know, learn people's names and and try to pronounce them correctly. But I also uh, was thinking about um, some cultural practices or ideas that are embedded into our community that contribute to that um, sort of cycle of um, maybe sexist ideas, colorism, 
you know, um, even racism, right, in our society. Um, and so, um, so one of the one of the things that you said, and and it was, it was kind of funny and not funny, right? Um, everybody in the audience gasped when um, you talk about getting darker, you know, in in the summer. And then, um, and then wearing a white shirt, <laughs> and your mom saying, "Pareces eh, mosca en leche." Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it's funny, but it, it isn't right because there is this uh, worry, right, concern with um, the color of a skin, of our skin, and how dark we might get, and and what that would mean, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, colorism, which is prejudice based on skin color, is universal. It's not unique to the Latino community. I was in India a couple of times in the last few years, and so many ads for fair and lovely skin cream, right? Mm -hmm. And I have an Indian friend who tells a story about, you know, her mother wanted to make her lighter, um, that we have colorism and we have to acknowledge that it is a form of white supremacy. Uh, the, the belief that you are better if you are lighter. Now, it's rooted in the fact that you get treated better if you're lighter. Mm -hmm. And we see this. Uh, I, I often think that it's sad that we didn't have black serving colleges and universities like the African American community. But when I look at like who are the early Latino, Mexican American lawyers and doctors, in the state of Texas or California, they were all light-skinned light -skinned people mm -hmm. who kind of fit in more. Now, you can't help whatever color skin you might have. You could be Latina, Chicana, and be blonde and blue-eyed and very right. proud of your ethnic heritage and, mm -hmm. and your, your name, your family. So our physical appearance, it just is, right? Mm -hmm. But so many people have bought into whiteness being better. Mm -hmm. and. If I would tell my mother that she was making judgment based on skin color, no, pues para mí todos son iguales. Yes. And it's like, well, you might say that we're all the same to you, but I hear people making favorable comments about light skin mm -hmm. people. Oh, ese Luis tan prieto, mm -hmm. pero tiene corazón de oro. <laughs> It's like right. an offset because mm -hmm. you have dark skin. Let me think of something nice to say about mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of my, um, my desire for the work I do as a playwright is to raise people's awareness about prejudice that we, prejudices that we have that we might even not even be aware we have them. Right. I love the bumper sticker that says, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> the right. first time I saw it, I thought, what does that mean? <laughs> and what it means is we all have a lot of ideas that we pick up as children from the community around mm -hmm. us, and we don't question them. We just think, well, that's the way it is, and that there's really bad judgments mm -hmm. in some of those uh, beliefs we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my husband is white, and when I married him, <clears throat> you know, one of the comments I hear, oh, y tus hijos, tus hijas van a ser bien güeritas. As a you know, as, as something that um, it's a good thing, right? right it's a right. good thing. That, Mejorando that, la raza, Mejorando an, la expression, raza right? an expression some people use. And you're right. It's hard for our, our gente, right, especially older generations, but not necessarily, mm -hmm. to um, accept, I guess, that these comments are not 
okay, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That that they lead to um, racist ideas and 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 feelings, right? For for especially sometimes because our families. Um, there is no guarantee that one child, you know, that because one child is light skinned, the other one will be, right? Our families are like that. And so um, you might be, um, in, because of the, the skin color or the tone, uh, you might unconsciously uh, favorite mm -hmm, one, mm -hmm. you know, one um, one child, child versus, another. Or, yeah. versus another. And, and I realized, so I, I know, like, I, I, sometimes have those conversations with family members or um, older generations, et cetera. And I can see, like I know how far I can go, um, mm -hmm. but I can see um, that sometimes that doesn't really register as something that, um, that is racist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is racist. Ibram Kendi in his book, Stamp from the Beginning, which is a history of racist ideas, differentiates between having a racist idea and being a racist person, right? Mm -hmm. We can all have racist ideas and it's important for us to begin to understand them. And he gives this story about his own life that when he started college at a black uh, um, historical black uh, college colleges and universities. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting it wrong. And, and, and that he was dating a light-skinned girl and that his fraternity brothers were all like gaga over, oh man, she's so pretty. And his own exploration of, well, what, is, what about her is pretty? It's that she's light skin and that it began to bother him mm -hmm. how we value light skin or not being so India looking, right? Mm -hmm. Right. The indigenous um, features of. Right. Mm -hmm. And so of glorifying the Spanish. You know, in my play, I have this uh, scene where I show a map of the United States with the lines drawn kind of, you know, silly uh, in what used to be Mexico. It's not a his completely historically accurate map, but, um, oh my God, I lost my train of thought. That's right. Um, yeah, okay, so yes, the Southwest used to be part of Spain and then part of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I'm all rah-rah Spain. They also were colonizers. I mean, they were the 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 competitors to the British, right? right? They came to the New World mm -hmm. and uh, they did all kinds of exploitive mm -hmm. and extractive things mm -hmm. uh, to enrich the crown and the church and all these other European institutions. So it's not like I'm cheering on those other white supremacists, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and it, but those are conversations that it, one of the things that gives me hope always is that when I talk to my students, right, uh, younger generations, are really are ready to have those conversations, are aware. Um, it's much easier for them to talk about privilege and having privilege. Um, and you know, and I have conversations about that with them. I said, well, there's we all carry a privilege, right? And so, absolutely. And and depending on. Uh, what where you are, uh, one might be more salient than the other, right? And so I, we began I have a a little uh, activity that I say, and I put I always you know um, put myself as an example. I said I'm I am um, a Latina, but I'm also educated. Um, I am an immigrant, but I'm also a U.S. citizen. And those things, you know, are both experiences sometimes of oppression and sometimes of privilege, right? And so um, 
students are ready, you know, are to to have those conversations, to acknowledge, and and that gives me hope, you know. Yeah, and I think that the reason the anti-CRT movement is so strong and working so hard is because they fear that this next generation isn't buying what they're selling, mm -hmm. the version of American history that doesn't take into account the reality of people of color in this country. There's also a tremendous amount of classism. We look down on poor people, right. whatever, whatever race they might be. Mm -hmm. And it is as if the fact that you're poor must mean there is something defective, deficient about you. Mm -hmm. And there are many reasons why somebody may find themselves in dire economic circumstances, verdad? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, another thing that we explore, which is one of the reasons that the title of your performance caught my attention, is names. I sometimes have um, on a on the first day of class. Uh, we talk about the story of our names, um, and I like that to have that. Um, you know, that um, activity. It, and even um, when I was in the Midwest, right, I had a predominantly white students. Um, and something happens, right, that that even, like, our white students think that they don't have a history, and we all have a history, right? And so through that name or name game, they're like, oh, well, I'm just named John. Like, well, I'm like, yeah, but why? Like, who, why did they give you that? Is it a family name? What's the history? And so when you start digging a little deeper, you know, they start like, oh, yeah. I'm like, okay. And if you don't know the story, go ask. ask. Go ask your parents, your grandparents. There's always a story, be a story behind it. Here, uh, with uh, majority... Latino, Latinx students, uh, there's there's a lot more, right? Like, or, or they're more ready to say, oh, yeah, well, I'm called, you know, I'm like my abuelita, or this is the name, you know, family name that was passed down. Um, and so, but with it, we also talk about how our names um, uh, sometimes were anglicized, right, uh, changed. Um, they have um, their own, um, have students this semester that have Anglo names, um, and they, <laughs> one of the things they say, they're like, I don't know why my mom gave me this name. It's like, I'm clearly Latina or Latino, right? Um, and, and so we start talking about the decisions that our parents made, right, about certain names. You know, maybe they had a hard time with a name like Jose, right, um, that they didn't want their kids to have some of those maybe oppressive racist idea or um, experiences, right? And mm -hmm. so they chose maybe Brian, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, um, other names that are more Anglo sounding. Um, and, um, and so I want to, you know, and, and then you mentioned, right, how some, uh, especially in the 50s, um, or even later on, right, um, you know, names like Jose uh, became Joe, or Maria became Mary. Um, and so I wanted to ask about what conversations have you had with other people? I mean, um, I really love that you take the time to say, my name is Irma, and let me spell that for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me about just people's experiences with, with names. Oh, my goodness. People share so many stories uh, with me about names, both after I perform my play or sometimes months after I perform my play, I'll get an email from somebody. And when I first started doing my show, several months later, I got an email from a woman that I know mm -hmm. who had gone to the Whitney Plantation, which is 
a museum about the history of slavery outside of New Orleans. And she said, my husband and I were with a group and the docent was excellent. And she took us to a wall that had a listing of all the people who had lived in that plantation. And the first thing she said is, these were not their real names. Mm -hmm. They were the names that were the Frenchified or Anglified names given to them by the plantation owners, but they went by their African names with each other. Mm -hmm. And so she said, I turned to my husband, Wayne, and I said, wow, Irma's play made me think about the applicability of names and how they're used as tools to oppress right. or give us dignity and acceptance. Mm -hmm. And so that's one kind of e extreme example. Right. But a lot of people will tell me, uh, somebody told me uh, their name. I'm going I'm to change the, the last name just because I haven't gotten her permission. Mm -hmm. But let's say her name was Mary Lairs. Mm -hmm. And she went by Mary Lairs for years because that's what she thought her name was. That's what they called her at school. And then in college, she, she's Mexicana, Chicana. She's dating somebody and goes, you're not Mary Lairs, you're Maria Lares. <laughs> and she said, yeah, actually, that is who I am. Mm -hmm. And then she said she was in a serious relationship with someone and he wanted her to take his name. And she said, no, I already changed my name once for somebody else. I'm not willing to do it a second time. It's true. So I get to hear many people's stories and how, you're right, most people were named after somebody or about something that was meaningful to a parent. And it could be something as much as, I like the sound of mm -hmm. that word, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there was a time where names Van de moda, verdad? Mm -hmm. Some names are more popular. Right now, the most popular names are Emma and, uh, is it Olivia? I just did a little post about that. But Emma certainly is high up there. And there was a time when Kathy was a really popular name. Oh, Olivia. Maybe it's Olivia. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, names come and go. And some people invent names completely mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and make them up and in fact in the african-american community there is a a tradition and part of me is like right on mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. that's a way of ex exercising some dominion over your life mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. i can choose to create an entirely new word and language is always evolving right, right. it's always changing yeah but even names like names we invented, names were always invented. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, this is true. So um, there's a writer called uh, Ruha ben Benjamin, and she talks about this, right? Like names, because some people, I mean, there's the other extreme, right, where uh, names are racialized, uh -huh. um, and um, and that can be, um, um, leads to maybe negative uh, uh, experiences, right? Um, and and there, there, for example, there's studies that say that um, ethnic names um, of applicants uh, for jobs get less callbacks yep. than that non, you know, ethnic names. Um, and so, and maybe um, there are other, you know, things associated with with um, ethnic names, but. She talks about, you know, how uh, people say, "Oh, well, they're just made up names." Well. All the names are made up. <laughs> All names are made up, right? And so uh, it's funny that you say Emma because my oldest daughter, I named her Emma 
and you know 20 almost 22 years ago and I think a few years later it was super popular so Emma's always been around <laughs> yeah yeah no it's been it's been around right. Uh, but right now it is super super popular and it's a beautiful name the other thing I think about a name like Emma is that it works in multiple in languages. That was, right? well, that's that why I it, chose it. <laughs> uh, yeah, like Irma. Where yeah. did you find your name? You found it in another country. Yeah, I found my name in Denmark, and <laughs> the biggest grocery store chain in Denmark is named Irma. So that was such a kick to see my name in these big marquees, letter signs, and to walk into a store that has Irma label products all over. So I have a lot of fun <laughs> with that, and. The name Irma does have more than one pronunciation, mm -hmm. so it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's just that, in my case, it's Irma, not Irma, so yeah. I would appreciate people calling me that. Exactly. Just the way I would call someone who says it Irma, I would call her Irma. Mm -hmm. I can't begin to tell her how to say her name or that right. her name is wrong and should be said the way I say <laughs> mine. Right, right. And so that, and, and you know, there's so many things. I mean, I think we could spend hours about name, talking about names here, but uh, there is also this, um, you know, when you pronounce people's names, the, the way that they pronounce it, right, the way that they want their name to sound, um, it's, it's honoring. Mm -hmm. It's also like a feeling of home, right, when somebody says your name correctly. And I remember I had this moment in, in Ohio when I had a, had a student, um, again, majority um, um, Anglo or African-American students, and then I had one Latina student. And I forget what her name was right now, maybe Leticia, something like that. And I pronounced, you know, I saw the name and I pronounced it in Spanish. And, and then... I'm like, is that how you say it? She's like, yes. And I'm like, okay. So then after class, she comes to me. She's like, you have no idea how I felt um, about you pronouncing my name the way my family pronounces it. You know, like, she's like, I haven't heard my name pronounced correctly in many years. You know? yeah, yeah. And so it does something for people. Absolutely. I have a similar story Uh Kind of the flip side of that, I have a friend whose name is Aracelia, and she was in a law school class, and so she was talking, and the law professor was Chicano, and uh, I think she said her name, Aracelia, mm -hmm. and he said, well, is it Aracelia or Aracelia? It's like, oh, you can say my name. Mm -hmm. No, it's the way you said it, but I was adjusting it, right? right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people do make the self-adjustment to make another person more comfortable. Now, if somebody wants to do that, that's their choice. Mm -hmm. But it's a two-way street, right? Why should we always be the ones mm -hmm. changing how we say our name so that it's easier for someone else? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not take the time to learn. And it's really not difficult to learn it people's names. It, right? and, no, and practice. I mean, we just need to practice, right? We had to practice, at least me, when I, you know, learn English, I had to uh, learn how to say people's names. I, I still struggle with a couple of them. Yeah, uh, there's a story, but I can't remember the woman's uh, father's name it's a she's a well-known Indian American writer and she talks about her dad when he moved to the United States and he went for a job interview he'd gotten a degree in engineering and the guy said uh, maybe it's Menendram something like that 
your name is awfully difficult. Can I call you something else? And he said, no, please don't. He said, when I moved here, I had to learn so many things. I learned to say refrigerator. And I think if you can learn to say refrigerator, you can learn to say my name. Yes. So, yeah, if you just have an open mind, and sometimes you have to ask people more than two or three times, help me get it right. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And people generally aren't going to get upset with you. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I had a white guy. I recently gave a talk at a corporation in Nashville, and a white guy who said, I have a supervisor who repeatedly mispronounces my name. Mm-hmm. And he said, my name is Stefan, not Stephen. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. And I told a story about the basketball player, Steph Curry, who goes to a, a meeting with Nike because they wanted him to endorse, to be an endorser of their product. Uh-huh. And they kept mispronouncing his name. And he said, no, I'm taking my business elsewhere. So it isn't just an issue for you know, ethnics or mm-hmm. people who have difficult names. Sometimes if your name is Alexander and you want to be called Alexander and someone keeps calling you Alex, you don't like it. Right, right. Yeah, it's preference and, and we should honor it's, what it's people... Respeto, it's respeto. Showing people respect. If mm-hmm. you can't even be bothered to learn what I want to be called, mm-hmm. please, you know, give absolutely. me a break. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, um, Irma, your performance goes beyond the name exploration, right? Even though um, I love the name, uh, would I, why would I per- mispronounce my own name, right? Um, it takes us to uh, uh, Chicano history, right? And and so tell me about this decision of incorporating, you know, sort of issues or stories about names uh, with the Chicano history, you know, from your own um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. walking through some of those changes, right, that were happening in our country. Yeah, so uh, I spent most of my career as a civil rights lawyer uh, working for the rights of Latinos, immigrant kids, women. Uh, I care about any group that gets oppressed, right, or that gets mistreated. But in, in that experience, I've seen how we view certain people as less than. We may not use those words, but you know we devalue the contributions of certain people. And so I've always been very interested in the history of discrimination, the history of racism, and I've read quite widely. I, I never have enough time to read all the things I want to read and to research all the things I want. So I get all these ideas and using names as the entry point to talk about who counts and who doesn't in our society Mm -hmm. has enabled me to bring so many things into my play. And it keeps changing, even though the play has had the same name for more than five years. uh, People who've seen it multiple times say, well, it's different every time. The the body of the play isn't that different because my life story doesn't change, right? How my family was in Alice, where I went to college and law school, the jobs that are part of my play. But there is one scene that's always changing, and it's a scene in which I talk about racism, homophobia, mm-hmm. uh, well, colorism. And those things are sprinkled throughout my play right. so that it's not a surprise where you get the same theme over and over mm-hmm. in a different scene. And so I don't know where the stories come from. For example, in this show that I did last night, It's the first time 
that I talked about Rodney King. Mm. I hadn't thought about the Rodney King incident in a long time, but I have been thinking a lot uh, over the years about police brutality and about the impact in the communities, African-American communities and Latino communities, although Native Americans proportionately experience more severe brutality, mm. and partly because they're such a small number, those, you know, that issue doesn't get even reported, right. which brings me to, uh, I wish I could include everybody and everything in my play, and I can't. But I wanted to make the connection, knowing I was coming to Texas, uh, and I did my play in Texas earlier this year at Texas A&M Kingsville. I wanted to talk about police brutality in the Latino community. Mm -hmm. And I, I had remembered the case of Jose Torres from Houston many years ago. Maybe it was when I heard the podcast, The Chicano Squad. Mm. And if anyone uh, hasn't heard it, I highly, highly recommend it. It's a wonderful, I think it's a 10-part podcast. And it starts with this case of this Chicano who was killed by the Houston police mm. and how it led to a complete change in the Houston Police Department because there were very few Latino cops. There was a lot of brutality towards the Latino community. And what I, the point I make in my play is history is being made all the time, right? Mm -hmm. We may not immediately see it, but in the books down the road in 30 or 50 years, this period of time is gonna be super important around the way police brutality against people of color right. came into the national consciousness mm -hmm. of the whole country. And then kind of the final straw was George Floyd. Right. We couldn't deny that this was happening. And it was a, a confluence of many factors, including the, the, that we were all in our houses mm -hmm. and isolated and were watching something that may not have caught our attention at another time if there were so many other things going on. But it's like, how do I raise awareness in other communities about how that's our issue too. Right. It doesn't have to be one of our children for us to care about. But you know what? It's happened to our kids too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in this instance of Jose Campos Torres, he goes to Vietnam, comes back, lives through his tour of duty in Vietnam, comes back to be killed by a cop in his lo local community. Right. You know, cops who throw him in the bayou saying, Let's see if the wetback can swim. And then they walk away. And of course, the man drowns. He's been severely beaten already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just love that I can incorporate things. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, I'd forgotten about Rodney King. This mm -hmm. trajectory of police brutality has been, we've been seeing it for a long time, but we needed to have a critical mass of documented cases mm -hmm. where we saw the videotape including live streaming of somebody being killed. Goodness gracious. Right. And there was a case in Memphis where a black man was killed, and the police who killed him were also black. Mm -hmm. And people were then were saying, well, see, it's not racism. Well, yes, it is. You can be policing in a racist way mm -hmm. in certain communities, right. and you have people who work for an institution this has been formed with, by a belief mm -hmm. that certain communities get policed in one way and others in another way. Right. That's, yeah. that's a racist idea behind how we police. Mm -hmm. in, a, in addition to that, I remember how <clears throat> there, um, this police uh, man were 
quickly identified and, you know, and all over um, the news and things versus maybe white cops that yes. are not identified right away, yes. right? Yes. Um, so some have the benefit of the doubt, but yeah. some are already guilty, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just by their skin color. And so, yeah, I do like how you were, you are able, I mean, the nature of the play is that you can incorporate and make connections with current events, right, that are happening um, and how it affects even regionally, right, how, yes. that, how, how this makes sense here in, in Texas. And I had not heard the story of Jose Campos um, before. Uh-huh. So, mm-hmm. And for many people, a lot of what's in my play, they've never heard before. Right. Like, they don't know that the GI Bill was um, operated in a racist way. It wasn't designed to be racist, but, okay, you give something to everybody, mm-hmm. uh, a college education if you want it, but if you only have a ninth-grade education, you aren't going to college. Right. The people who could take advantage of programs were, for the most part, white. Mm-hmm. And so that was, and I purposely called the GI Bill the biggest, most successful, most popular affirmative action program because we've had affirmative action for white people for a long time. Mm -hmm. And back then, our families couldn't take advantage of those programs. When you look at the disparity in wealth between racial groups in the United States, so much of it for white people has to do with home ownership. Mm -hmm. Well, when you bought a home that was built in the post-World War II era for... $5,000 and it's appreciated and is now worth $600,000 in a nice white neighborhood with good schools, you can pass those benefits on generationally. Well, Latinos and blacks couldn't buy those houses Mm -hmm. after World War II. They were in segregated neighborhoods, legally segregated neighborhoods. So yeah, people say, well, my family didn't own slaves, and how have I benefited? I, you know, I'm just a white working person. Why am I going to be responsible? I didn't create this problem. It's true, you didn't create this problem, but to your point of privilege, you have benefited from mm-hmm. something that was set up, and you didn't create it. The author, Isabel Wilkerson, in her book, Cast, mm-hmm. talks about how our country is like an old house. You know, you move into an old house and you're the new owner and it's not your fault or maybe even the prior owner's fault that it has foundation problems. Mm -hmm. But there you are living in it and you need to address it and take care of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to be doing in our country, addressing the issues and the problems that have not yet been resolved by prior generations. And I think that, again, back to the anti-CRT movement, they don't want the truth about the history of our country to be known. And it's known more and more with the 1619 Project, Mm -hmm. with more Latino, Asian American, American Indian, indigenous uh, scholars, authors, who care about their community. So that's what they write about, Mm -hmm. right? right? So how could we know our history if we didn't have people who were willing to explore it? And now that we do, and we have those books out there, Boom, they're trying to shut it down. Of course they want to shut it down because they don't want the other side of the story to be known. They want to live by the myth of American exceptionalism Mm -hmm. and that, yeah, there's a lot of great things about this country. That's why a lot of people are coming here because, Mm -hmm. and people are coming also because they're leaving desperate situations 
in many instances created by US policy, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. But we don't know that if we aren't told a broader version of the history. Right. And yeah, and there's you're talking also about this personal responsibility to educate ourselves, right? And 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 I don't think everybody has that, right? And and this is a call for personal mm -hmm. responsibility to learn. You know, if somebody says, oh well this is because of US policies in Central America, well then if you don't know about it, go explore, mm -hmm. go learn, go read about it, mm -hmm. right? Um don't just take my word, go right. read it. Right? And there's so much we can learn that's so easily available right now. For example, this podcast that I told you about, the Chicano Squad. 10 episodes, maybe 40 minutes, really enjoyable, well done. Somebody recommended a podcast. I think it's called Everything for Selena. Oh. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, okay, you know, Selena's a wonderful performer. It's a tragic situation that she was killed. But the podcast is about so many more things. It's about being from, you know, Mexican-American family and maybe not not knowing Spanish mm -hmm. and why you didn't. Right. It's about the history of our community and Tejano roots. Mm -hmm. It's it's about bilingualism. It's about so many things, and embedded right. in it is a lot of history mm -hmm. of our community. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always interested in being exposed to new ideas and also learning about other communities to see the similarities and the differences. Mm -hmm. Irma, what have what is maybe one or, or two things that you want the audience to come away with and what have they told you they most appreciate from your performance, from your play? Well, one of the earlier things that I mentioned was the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. When I perform in let's say the Bay Area where the audiences are overwhelmingly white mm -hmm. that come to my show, I will be told by people, I had no idea that the GI Bill worked that way. It's mm -hmm. like my father, my grandfather, whatever, went to medical school, went to law school with right. the GI Bill, and my grandparents bought their first home. But I didn't realize, I'd never thought about the things that I learned here. Right. And uh, so that's one thing, that people learn a little bit about the history of our community. The other thing, I just want people to think about the attitudes they have towards any number of things. And that's why I throw, out, throw up that word cloud that goes on the screen as I'm talking about. Yes, my play is very much about racism, but people need to think about misogyny. People need to think about... Um, classism, mm -hmm. people need to think about homophobia, because all of those things uh, lead to our mistreating our brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. right? right? And you can be a person of color who has experienced discrimination, and you turn right around and treat someone else poorly. Right. And I just want people to stop and think about where does that idea come from that I have? Mm -hmm. Because we all have a lot of ideas that we pick up from our community, from our friends, from our parents, and oftentimes we don't question them. Mm -hmm. It's just what we think. Right, right. Irma, what are you working on right now? So well, this I keep, wonderful play. Yeah, but. thank mm -hmm. you. Well, I keep working on this play. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping to return to San Antonio next year uh, to some other venues. And so I'm always looking for new ways to make the material 
more relevant to a particular area where I might be performing. So I try and tailor it a little bit. So when I took it to Tennessee, I was researching the loss of Tennessee around CRT. So if you had seen that play over there, you'd have seen a slightly different play where I talked about books that were being banned, like the story about Ruby Bridges. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to ban a book about this case called uh, Desegregation Case based in California where the um, the plaintiffs were Mexican-Americans. And it was before Brown versus Board of Education. There had already been a case saying that separate but equal schools for Mexican-Americans was illegal, right? And so I'm always working on that. I also am interested in writing another play about class differences, about the experience of going from one socioeconomic class to another, and what, what comes with that, right? The, the privileges, the additional privileges you have, um, the things you get to do that maybe people you grew up with are not gonna have an opportunity to do. Uh, so you, and to me it's important to be reminded that we, we might have worked really hard to get something, but someone else was equally deserving of getting that if they wanted that. Not everybody wants to have the same things in life, right? But to explore the themes of class, because people don't like to talk about class in the United States. Right. We like to believe that we are the most uh, class mobile and classless society, but we aren't. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of classism. So the working title of that work is Class Migrant, but I haven't uh, made a whole lot of progress. <laughs> what I'm super excited about right now is I started this uh, little series called My Stairwell Teatro, where I tell stories from the stairwell in my house. And I'm trying to tell a story in two minutes. <laughs> and it's typically a story about names. And the episode that we just published this week is called Hashtag A-I-T-A, -A, uh, Camila, or Camila, where a guy who says, I'm white, but I'm married to a Mexican-American woman, and we had a baby, and we named her Camila, but my wife says it with a Mexican accent, <laughs> and I say it in the white way, and my wife wants me to say it with a Mexican accent. Oh, my God, my hackles got up. It's like, she's not saying it with a Mexican accent, Vato. She's saying Camila in Spanish, and he's saying Camilla. So the mm -hmm. guy writes to Reddit and asks people to opine on whether he's being a jerk by not wanting to say the name the way his uh, wife says it. Uh, so that's what I'm super excited about. And I'm on TikTok. I just got on TikTok not long ago. So I would love for people to check out those stories. And people send me ideas about stories. And it's just so much fun to engage people in a dialogue through social media about some of these issues. And people can find you in on Facebook? Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, Irma Herrera Writer. Uh, at at uh, Instagram, the initial D as in Delta, because my middle name is Dolores, but somebody uh, said to someone, it's Il D like in dog, and she said, I know que feo, di como diosa. Di like in diosa. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so at Instagram, it's Irma Diarrera. And I like to post about different things. I like to travel. Speaking of privilege, I'm a very privileged person in that I get to travel and see how people live in other countries. And I'm always exploring the issues of racism mm -hmm. in other places, mm -hmm. right? 
because it's not unique to our country. Exactly. And the issue of names and name discrimination, which you mentioned earlier about certain names are less are likely to get less favorable treatment when mm -hmm. you apply for a job. There are studies by economists in the United States, but those same studies have been replicated in Great Britain, in France, in New Zealand, and it just depends what group you're from, right? right. If you're from a North African country or of ancestry, because you can be as French as, uh, you know, François Mitterrand, <laughs> um, but you happen to be from a North African family that if you have a name like that, you're likely to be less well-received, right. shall we say, when you apply for certain jobs. Right, right. Irma, muchas gracias por esta conversación. El gusto es mío, and it's so nice to uh, be with this community. I love sharing uh, our stories, and it's super important for our stories to be heard. Of course. A todos, gracias por escucharnos, y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Sí.